Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Welcome to another Protein Production Technology International exclusive. I'm delighted to be joined now by Joshua March. He's the CEO and co-founder of Sci-Fi Foods. They're a San Leandro, California-based producer of cultivated meat. But as we'll find out, they are doing things very, very differently. A unique production process and a pretty unique product. Now, this interview forms part of our special feature on hybrid foods. The next edition out at the end of January 2024. So keep an eye out for the written version in the new year and go onto our website to subscribe free of charge to receive that and future editions hot off the press. So Josh, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Um, Could you give us a a brief history of sci-fi foods and and why you stand out in this particular sector? Yeah. So, you know, first, the history really goes back almost 15 years, um, which was when I first read about the concept of cultivated meat uh, in a science fiction book, Uh, (laughs) just after I'd read The Singularities Near by Ray Kurzweil, which kind of got me incredibly excited by the potential for exponential improvements in technology to really dramatically change the world for the better in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it was around the same time I then read about this idea of growing meat outside the animal. And it just struck me kind of like a lightning bolt. I was like, this has to be the future. You know, as I'm yeah. kind of thinking about the utopian future that we're trying to build with technology, if that future still requires us to be cutting down the entire rainforest and throwing billions of animals into factory farming, then like, you know, we haven't quite made it. Um, yeah. And it just felt like food supply was obviously a super important part of that. Um, and especially when you look at the climate issues of meat and all the other stuff that you and you know your listeners will be familiar with, it just felt obvious to me that this was a solution that, that needed, needed solving. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was something that I was thinking about for a very long time. Um, and I started to come across some of the first scientists and entrepreneurs working on cultivated meat back in like 2016. Um, went to one of the first ever uh, conferences in the world and cultivated meat organized by New Harvest and was a donor there and started doing some investing and some advising in the space. And for a few years was just on the sidelines, learning as much as I could and not sure if I was going to start a company in the space or just be a supporter. I was like, great, this feels like this is happening. Um, but the more that I learned, the more I realized that there were actually some really major uh, challenges that I felt were going to stop cultivated meat from actually being commercially successful if they weren't involved, especially around the cost and and the scale. And I became pretty disenchanted with what I was seeing from other companies in the space, uh, which I felt was a lot of, you know, uh, optimism, uh, the costs were just going to come down and a lot of hand waviness about how this was going to magically happen. Uh, Mm. Whereas the more I learned, the more I realized like, oh, there's some massive, massive challenges and no like clear route to solving some of these challenges in the near term. Mm. Um, And I basically began to feel like I needed to start a company in the space myself and take a more commercially realistic approach to doing that. Um, and one of the core parts of that was this blended, or as you call it, hybrid approach, which now is becoming you know, more, uh, more, more kind of common as everyone's realizing they need to, need to do it. But at the time, most people were claiming they were going to do 100% cultivated meat. And it was very clear to me that that was not coming anytime soon. Um, but I did see a big opportunity uh, in doing blended products that had the potential to dramatically improve uh, the quality and the taste of meat alternatives from where they were. 
Um, so that was a big, big part of the, the starting of the company. Um, now, the other big part of what we do technically, which we can get into uh, if useful, is around how we use genetic engineering to solve a lot of the cost and scale challenges. That's the other kind of major um, technical part of what we're doing that we is, again, was extremely unique. Now, more and more companies are realizing that they need to do it. Um, but we have a kind of multi-year head start on that. So mm -hmm. that's a bit about the origin. Um, I noticed from your accent that um, you may well be from this part of the uh, Atlantic yeah. or this side of the Atlantic. Um, so what's been your own career path into food tech? Yeah, well, um, not a, not a, st a standard one for sure. Um, I've always been an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I was, I am English. I uh, started my first company uh, in, in the UK um, and ended up doing a couple of different software, venture-backed software companies. Or one, one was bootstrapped, one was venture-backed. Um, and one of those, I started in London and then moved to the US to New York originally to launch it in the US and lived in, in New York for eight years uh, while I was running that company before it was sold. Um, but basically all the time I was doing those other companies, I was said, just kind of thinking about this problem and learning more and more and more about it on the side um, and decided to come start the company. So it was definitely a big pivot away from you know enterprise software uh, into food tech and biotech. Um, but, you know, luckily I have a great co-founder and I built an amazing team who bring a lot of the scientific understanding. Um, and I just, you know, I love to learn as much as I can. And so you just hire great people and work with great people. It's kind of mm. key. Well, I mean, it's still early days for you as a company, but what would you say has been your biggest milestone, um, to date? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, the entire challenge in cultivating meat is how do you make this affordable and scale it up? Right. Mm. And it was clear to us pretty early on. From doing detailed technoeconomic modeling, that um, you know, there's a pretty narrow path to what you need to do when you look at existing technology, and you really need to create a very simple, large-scale process that has the minimal of expensive inputs and expensive components. Um, big part of that is you really need to develop cell lines that can uh, grow in single-cell suspension. So that means they can grow floating liquid in a bioreactor without the need for uh, microcarriers or scaffolds or any of these things which add both costs in the input and a lot of complexity and costs in the kind of processing. Um, and you know, a number of companies had tried to develop beef cell lines that could do that, but basically failed. And most mm -hmm. of the companies who are working on beef today rely on microcarriers. So they're like, you know, getting the cells to attach to these tiny plastic beads. Usually are they the growth factors. No, separate from growth factors. That's all right. Separate. Okay. So, uh, microcarriers are like plastic beads that the cells attach and grow onto. Mm -hmm. When you first take a, a cell from an animal muscle, especially, um, it only wants to grow attached to a surface, right? And so if you want to grow it in a bioreactor, it's like attached to this, the, the surface of a plastic bead floating in liquid, but that mm -hmm. puts a real limit on the cell densities you can get to, and you have the expense of the microcarriers and the complexity of removing the cells from the microcarriers. So mm -hmm. it's very clear that if you want to get an economic process, you need to be able to just grow cells at scale without the need for any of that. Um, the cells have to be comfortable floating in liquid and said, no one had managed to do that for beef for various reasons. It was just, it was really hard. A lot of companies pivoted and worked on chicken because chicken cells will grow in that way relatively easily. Um, but because of our technical approach, we were able to develop beef cells that grow in single cell suspension. Mm -hmm. and that's a, uh, you know, a big unlock of, uh, efficiency, um, and, and lower costs at scale up. And we hit that milestone about a year and a half ago. To our knowledge, still no other company in the world um, has achieved that. And now, uh, just recently in the last couple of months, we also 
uh, achieved those suspension cell lines growing completely serum free. So no FBS throughout the entire process, um, which you know, is super important for scale up and also a big cost reduction. And again, we're not aware of anyone in the world who has beef cells that grow in suspension serum free. Uh, mm -hmm. with great growth characteristics. So we're, we're, those are, there's a lot more small things, but those are some of the things we're most proud of. Mm -hmm. Now, you openly um, state that um, you are developing a product, a hybrid product that blends cultivated meat with um, a plant-based product. Um, so firstly, how do you define hybrid and blended? Is there a distinction? Should we be bothered about the name? Um, look, I, I, in the end, I don't think consumers are going to care, right? So, no. <laughs> uh, you know, personally, I've always used blended. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's starting to get a little confusing because people are starting to use blended for products that combine conventional meat mm -hmm. with plant-based ingredients. And then people have been kind of hybrid for when you're combining plant-based with cultivated cells. I don't like the word hybrid personally, like from a consumer perspective. Um, uh, so I prefer the term blended. So I usually just use blended. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what do you think are the key drivers for, for these types of blended products? I think mean, ultimately what matters, right? What matters is how does it taste and how much does it cost? You know, everything else is kind of like details that, you know, maybe interesting, but no, no one cares about certainly from a consumer perspective. Uh, so when it comes to the percentage inclusion and everything else, it's just driven by those two things. Do you make, can you make an amazing tasting product that's affordable to consumers at the end of the day? And if you can do that, great. If you can't do that, it doesn't really matter. Um, so, you know, ultimately, why is blended important? Blended is important for two reasons. One is just a general factor of cost, right? Obviously, if you have 10x fewer cells, you get 10x less price, essentially, uh, and 10x fewer bioreactors you need. So you reduce your capex, which actually becomes one of the biggest driving factors. Um, but there's also scientific reasons, which is, you know, ultimately, we collectively as an industry know how to scale up the production of individual cells in bioreactors. That's pretty mm -hmm. established. The technologies to create structured products, right, where you're taking cells and turning them into muscle tissue or fat tissue, um, often using scaffolding, you know, that's really only been demonstrated at lab scale. And uh, the hardware does not exist to do that uh, at, at, at large scale today. And no one really knows what the hardware would need to look like in order to do that at large scale. I mean, people have ideas, but it's, it's you have multiple years of work to really validate some of those ideas and test them and scale them up. And it takes time. So um, because of that, you know, if you're just making individual cells with no structure, uh, you need to rely on the plant-based ingredients for the structure. Um, and that puts a kind of limit on the upper limit on your know, percentage inclusion rate, maybe around 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, Ultimately, we think that financial considerations you know, are a bigger limit today anyway. Um, and for our first product, our goal is to have about 10% inclusion rate, 10% uh, mm -hmm. inclusion rate. Um, and we find that that inclusion rate does make a really big difference to flavor, which makes sense. You know, if you think about ground beef, um, you know, ground beef, typically you're getting it from like 5 to 20% inclusion of fat. Um, and that makes a huge difference to the taste mm -hmm. and the texture. Um, so it makes difference. It makes makes sense that if you're thinking about an overall plant-based matrix and you're adding five to twenty percent of cells, that also makes a really big difference. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we find. Um, from the research that I've done into this um, area, um, the topic of food safety keeps coming up. Is is food safety a particular concern or a challenge in in hybrid foods or plant, you know, blended foods? 
I mean, no more or less than for cultivated meat in general. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, ultimately, just from a first principles perspective, um, overall cultivated meat is going to be much better from a food safety perspective than conventional meat, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be produced in extremely uh, sanitary uh, environments. You know, you're building facilities that are essentially kind of pharmaceutical-like facilities where you're avoiding even, you know, single bacteria getting in and contaminating. Um, so, you know, the end product is going to have far, far less uh, bacterial load or contamination than any kind of conventional piece of meat, which is covered in it. Um, and has gone through a slaughterhouse and you know, intestines and all the other kind of stuff that goes, goes with it. Um, mm. So by default, uh, there should be far less food safety issues. Um, you know, the main things of concern for regulators and that, you know, people have to watch out for is, well, what are you growing the cells in? And are there hormones or drugs in that that may still come out into the final product? Um, you know, are there, you know, it's moving around in various different ingredients and pieces of metal, like you end up with higher heavy metals. Like, you know, so it's, it's more about the processing and um, what you're putting with it um, and making sure that every, all of those are completely food safe. Um, but, you know, you have an extremely minimal risk of kind of contamination, which is obviously something that happens pretty commonly with conventional meat. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the regulations, I mean, we know that Upside and Good Meat have got their clearance for cell-cultivated chicken. Do, do you have to um, get the green light for your beef um, mm -hmm. and then you can do with it what you want in terms of a hybrid product or do you, or blended product, sorry, or do you have to create a whole new category for a blended product? Yeah, no, so if you look at um, the two approvals, they're slightly different. You know, Upside's first approval was for this a product right, where they were doing these kind of chicken breast products. Um, the Eat Just approval, however, was for uh, the chicken cells as an ingredient mm -hmm. uh, input into an overall product. And essentially that is what enables for you, you to use them in a blended product, right? right. So, so there is already a clear um, regulatory path for mm -hmm. having cells approved as an ingredient, and then they, they can be used as a blended product. Um, so yes, we would need to get approval, you know, the way that the regulators uh, work here is that um, you know it's this consultation process and they give a green light to a specific cell line and process for a company um, mm -hmm. so you know the more they give the more they understand exactly what they need and the more that we can see what other people have succeeded with and it gives a kind of more of a clear roadmap um, uh, so it helps but but yes we would still need to get approval yeah well it seems you've got a very proactive um administration over there for technologies such as these yeah. biotechnologies such as these um we're going to talk now about how hybrid products or blended products can overcome those challenges that the plant-based um, sector has had particularly with taste now but what would you say has gone wrong if anything with current plant-based offerings in what ways are they lacking yeah i look i think there's two there's two to three things right i think taste is number one and brand is kind of number two um Health is number three, but it kind of, it ties carefully into brand and I'll get into that. Mm -hmm. yeah, ultimately, I think that the plant-based category made some big mistakes and um, the mistakes were one, primarily marketing their products by kind of moralizing on the environment mm -hmm. and pitching health benefits that weren't really there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think both of them kind of backfired. Um, the first one backfired just because people don't care. Um, intellectually, people obviously care about the environment a lot. Um, most people do. But when it comes to buying a burger, you know, that's not top of mind. 
you know, people no. are thinking about, oh, I'm going to buy this burger instead of this burger because in 10 years it'll have a slightly pos more positive impact on the environment. Like that's just not how people are thinking about it on a Friday night when they're choosing what to order, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and yeah, ultimately they're thinking about what tastes great fundamentally and what's affordable and, and available. And, um, then on the health side, it just kind of backfired because, you know, there was, there was this kind of zeitgeisty moment in 2020 and 2021, you know, game changes had come out and there was this kind of meme of like, oh, all meat is bad for you and anything plants is good. The reality was the science didn't really back that up. It was mainly kind of trumped up. Um, you know, the science is pretty clear that everyone should eat more vegetables. Um, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> you know, everything yeah. else is kind of correlation. Um, and so we kind of went massively overhyped in terms of like, this stuff's good for you. Now it's kind of overhyped the other way where people are like, oh, it's all processed. Therefore it must be bad for you. You know, the reality is it's mainly just like plant protein and like those same people go into like a smoothie shop and get their like health food smoothie and it's like pea protein. It's like the same <laughs> stuff than a Beyond Burger. Um, you know, in one context, they think it's healthy and one context, they think it's not. So it doesn't really make logical sense. It's kind of overhyped. But I think it kind of, it's overhyped as a kind of backlash to the hype that it did have from a health perspective. So um, ultimately, I think they focused on the wrong things. Um, and ultimately, what, what actually matters is, does it taste great? And, you know, is it affordable and available? And like, you know, people aren't necessarily really thinking about health for when they're buying a burger unless you tell them to. Um, and so it just shouldn't have even been, been part of the conversation, really. Um, and taste, I think, ultimately, is still a big problem, right? There was a lot of this, like, hype that, like, oh, plant-based meat is there. It's done it. It's, it's like real meat. And then every meat eater kind of tries it and, like, mm, not really, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So suddenly they're being asked to pay more for a product that kind of tastes worse. And, you know, all the kind of health and arguments aren't really still holding up. And no one really cares about the environmental arguments when it comes down to it. Um, and so it just kind of, like, fizzled, has kind of fizzled. Um, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of good stuff happening. But I think part of the other problem is that, you know, when you look at the plant-based meat world, I mean, Impossible Foods is a great product. Um, and you look at a lot of the other products and they're just not very good, right? And like a ton of investment, a ton of uh, energy came into the sector. And most of the products were really mediocre. Mm -hmm. um, and they've had to kind of retrench and mainly now just selling to the kind of vegan vegetarian market that was already buying meat alternatives anyway. Um, and, uh, again, I think there are small bright spots like impossible who are still growing, uh, obviously not as fast as they were because the products are just really good quality. And I think that shows that if you can make a great tasting product, people are interested, but that unfortunately just isn't true for the majority of plant-based meat. Mm -hmm. So I'm presuming your product does taste absolutely amazing. Yeah. So what, in your opinion, are the challenges in mim mimicking that sensory, um, experience of a conventional well, we'll say burger, for instance, but it could be anything. It could be a nugget or. A... Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, part, I mean, there's lots of reasons we focused on beef, but part of it is that it's actually really hard to recreate the the experience and the flavor of beef. You know, and you do have this challenge uh, and this part of the big challenge in, in meat alternatives is, you know, you need something to, to feel realistic. Something has to basically be pretty neutral when it's raw. And mm. then, you know, as you cook it to smell and to taste like real beef mm. and, um, you know, there aren't really many flavors that you can create artificially that have that impact. You know, this is why you kind of, you have this weird experience where you buy plant-based meat and it kind of smells like it's cooked before you've cooked it. And it's just a little kind of off-putting and weird. Right. And so I think that's one of the big benefits that the cultivated meat and blended products bring 
is you have this flavor ingredient that I mean, is real beef, it's real beef cells. And that means that, yeah, it doesn't really smell or taste of anything when it comes out, but as you cook it, uh, it, it cooks and smells and tastes like conventional beef. And so it does have this big flavor impact uh, in this really, really exciting and kind of positive way. Um, and for us, I think we've been partly lucky with our cell lines, but you know, we found that just straight off the bat, they had this really big positive taste impact. And mm-hmm. um, they both introduced a lot of these kind of beefy tasting notes. They also masked and kind of hid a lot of the kind of serially planty off notes, which you get in plant-based meat, which is one of the big problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found they had a big, a big impact. Uh, there's obviously a lot more. This is the other nice thing about cultivated meat is you can keep optimizing and improving things over time, right? And so there's like a whole world of ways that we can improve the fatty acid profile and the flavor profile and the texture profile, even the health profile of the mm-hmm. cells. Uh, in terms of like proteins and fats that are good for you versus bad for you. Um, so, yeah, we're just at the beginning of that journey. Uh, but we find that off the bat, yeah, as long as we mix it in the right way, it really does have a, a huge positive impact. Yeah, I, I like, like that you said that we're at the start of this journey because even the plant-based sector is still quite a nascent industry. Yeah. Um, in, if you look at the whole scheme of things in terms of the conventional foods that they're trying to um, not replace, but become part of the same mix. Um, you know, they've got decades and decades and decades. So th- these products are the, you know, these are the Nokias <laughs> of, yeah. the, of the sector, yeah. aren't they? Wait till the iPhone comes along. So presumably your product's going to be that iPhone or the, well, or the yeah, iPhone. Well, yeah, I'm the products of the wet, probably the BlackBerry, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on that phone. I'm going to be coming in another 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I think I've read you um, say something along the lines of all cultivated meat products that come to market in a meaningful way um, will be blends. Now, the cultivated meat sector itself is facing huge challenges. You touched on some of those before. Cost, scaling. Um, what are some of the others, in your, in your opinion? I mean, look, obviously, cost and scale are the biggest challenge. And then, you know, layering onto that at the moment is the fundraising environment. Right. The venture market, um, you know, overall VC funding has decreased significantly and, um, you know, investors are very concerned about your know, future financing risk, i.e. how much money you're going to need to raise before you can have, you can go to profitability. And that's a big challenge in a sector like cultivated meat, where you really have to build large scale facilities in order to, uh, in order to get profitable. Um, yeah. that's a big challenge. And then obviously food tech is just kind of down in general. So I think there's this, there's this whole question for uh, cultivated meat companies at the moment of, you know, what do we need to do to raise additional funding? And, you know, do we need to shift our strategies? A lot of companies came up with their business plans and strategies when your know, fundraising was overall much easier. Um, and so in an environment where fundraising is harder and doing large capital projects is much harder, is there a way that you can shift your business model and strategy, um, in order to, uh, to reduce that future financing risk? So I think those are the kind of things that are top of mind at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the products that come to market and succeed being blends, your, your reason for that is simply that they help overall tick all of the boxes from a financing yeah, point, I, from a taste point. I, I just don't, you know, I don't believe that the technology exists today to do 100% cultivated meat mm-hmm. at any kind of meaningful scale or cost. Mm-hmm. So can a company release a tiny amount of product a month? Yes, but like, that's not really a backable VC opportunity. You're not really doing, having any impact on the world. Yeah. They're probably losing insane amounts of money on every single bite of steak or chicken. Um, so what are you doing? What are you proving, right? Uh, ultimately, yeah, you've got to build a business here and business means you can make an affordable product that consumers love at scale. 
Um, and today, the only products that will be true of are blended products. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, there's still a lot of work to get them affordable and at scale. Um, and so you've got to do that first. If you can do that, then you'll get the chance to do eventually the 100% cultivated uh, in the future as it does become possible. Uh, but there's a journey to get there. Yeah. yeah. And are there any emerging technologies or innovations that you're aware of that could you know, turn this thing on its head overnight? I guess if they were, you'd be, <laughs> you wouldn't tell us. <laughs> Look, there are um, ultimately what's the biggest uh, inhibitor of increasing the inclusion rate. It's primarily the capex, right? And um, there are uh, multiple companies working on novel bioreactor systems that could really change the economics uh, of cultivated meat in a, in a meaningful way. Um, and there are ones working on novel bioreactor systems for that kind of tissue engineering, tissue maturation to make 100% cultivated meat. meat viable as well. Um, so there are some of those that are very exciting. You know, it's just, it's unlikely that any of that happens overnight, right? Because it takes time to build novel hardware. It takes time to test it and to validate it with, with biological, uh, manufacturing and to iron out all the kinks and the bigger, and, you know, to really validate it, you need to demonstrate that it can be done at large scale and those become large engineering challenges as well. So, um, I'm definitely optimistic about our ability overall uh, to to get to 100, um, percent but it will take some time. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned um, branding and marketing a little bit earlier, um, so we're going to come on to that. I mean, this particular sector needs to drive real category differentiation in the market versus plant-based products to avoid falling into those same marketing pitfalls, I guess. I mean, what's your take on what's been happening in the plant-based sector over the past 12 months? There's been lots of critical press. Some might even say there's been a, an agenda waste against the sector. And we're seeing that certainly you've cultivated meat now. Um, you know, what do you think's going on? I mean, look, the reality is the main public market comp is beyond and, um, the beyond product isn't that good. Ultimately, like they've done amazing stuff as a company, but like the product doesn't taste very good. Like their core burger products, some of their sausages are good, but the core burger product doesn't taste very good. And their repeat purchase rates are really bad. Um, and, uh, you know, they grew a business very, very aggressively, mainly based off trial, right? They would open new accounts, go into new stores. They'd have lots of new people who were excited to try the product. And they kept doing that. And off the back of that, they're able to kind of demonstrate this really, really ra- rapid growth. But ultimately, if you don't have repeat purchase rates, then that becomes a kind of deck of cards, you know? Um, and that's kind of what happened, right? So their mm-hmm. sale kind of fell off because the repeat purchase rates just weren't high enough. Um, and that excitement about their growth and then, um, you know, <laughs> watching that kind of collapse has soured a lot of journalists, consumers, um, you know, investors, everything else. So, yeah, so I think, I think the performance of beyond overall has put a, a big kind of left quite a bit of a kind of sour note for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a shame because I said, as I said earlier, there are some good products that continue to grow, um, that have taken a different approach. And I think that's been compounded by, um, you know, having tons of startups also releasing bad products. Uh, over mm-hmm. the last few years. And so there was just all this excitement. And then people were like, no, nah, but the products just actually aren't very good. 
you know, and ultimately I think that's the, the biggest driver. Um, as I said, the industry is still nascent. I think that there's a lot of innovation happening. I think that over time, the best products will survive. And as the market kind of gets thinned out, and I think they'll be able to keep growing, albeit slowly, and eventually kind of pick up again. You know, it's definitely mm. the, kind of, the industry is in its kind of trough of despair at the moment. Yeah. So how does the blended um, sector, part of the sector, avoid those same pitfalls? Just produce better tasting products. Yeah, like I said, like I said earlier, I think they ha it has to produce great tasting products, uh, and it has to um, not try and moralize on you know health or the environment. And just say, look, these are great tasting products. We've got real meat in here, produced in a new way. Get people excited to try that and keep them coming back with great taste and, and convenience and affordability. Um, mm -hmm. In the end, those are the only things that really, that really matter. Um, in terms of nutritional composition, how can blended um, cultivated meat products offer a profile that more closely resembles traditional meat? Or could it, could it, can it even improve? On yeah, I mean, ultimately, cultivated meat itself you know, is real meat, right? So the nutritional mm -hmm. profile is basically the same, extremely similar to, to conventional meats. Um, obviously with blended products, you know, it's a percentage inclusion and the rest is plant-based. And the reality is when you look at the macros, like protein, you know, fat, all this kind of stuff, plant-based products often are pretty similar. Plant-based meat is pretty similar to conventional meat, often with just more fiber, mm -hmm. um, right? So from a pure nutritional perspective, it, it is kind of similar. Um, you kind of get into the nuances. But again, I think it was one of the mistakes was to kind of focus too much on the health side, because ultimately, like, is, is, you know, is that really why someone's buying a burger? It's not, you know, they're not eating a salad or getting a bowl of broccoli, or if they are mm. on top of the burger, right? <laughs> they want to make sure they're getting a good source of protein. Uh, but other than that, it's like, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, so I think, I think focusing less on health, I think will actually do the industry more, uh, be better for the industry than otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, what um, research have you done or surveys in, ter in terms of the consumer um, and you know their willingness to embrace a hybrid blended <laughs> burger yeah. um, or product more so yeah, yeah. we've done all kinds of surveys um, mm -hmm. many people in the industry have the reality is though is that like you only get you don't get great information from surveys with a product that isn't yet on market mm -hmm. until until consumer real people can actually see a product in a restaurant or on a grocery store and try it and see how you know and see how they respond to it in real life that's the only way you really know you know otherwise you're, you're asking people to imagine these hypothetical situations and most people aren't good at that yeah mm -hmm. uh you know especially when it, especially when it comes to food you know you're trying to get ask someone an intellectual question about what in the end ends up being essentially an emotional decision, right? It's kind mm -hmm. of a instinctual decision about which which brand do you go for, or what what food item do you go for. You know, you're not making a rational choice about it, or thinking about the pros and cons of each like menu item. You know, you're just going for what you feel like. Um, and so it's really hard to ask people who haven't even experienced the product how they think they would react to it um, mm -hmm. in a situation. And so ultimately, yes, we do the surveys, but like. I, you just got to get the products out there and speak to real people and see how they experience it. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's um, a role for the legacy food um, companies to play in this, this yeah. sector? I mean, we can see that they're, they're you know, that they have their plant-based brands. You can see they're investing into the cultivated meat sector. Um, so what role do you think they can play in, you know, nurturing this particular? I mean, ultimately, um, you know, really commercializing these products at large scale 
uh, is going to require a lot of capital and a lot of distribution. And, um, you know, again, four or five years ago, it was kind of easier for startups to uh, get all of that themselves um, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, raise the hundreds of millions they need to do absolutely everything. We're not in that environment anymore. You're in an environment where capital is more constrained. And so in an environment where capital is more constrained, I think there's going to be a lot more uh, willingness from startups to work with larger companies to partner on commercialization and, and do kind of be more B2B uh, style deals. And ultimately, I think a lot of those big companies who have plant-based brands, you know, need to be thinking about what do we do next? You know, what can, what can really move the needle here and expand what we're doing to a new batch of consumers and really increase and improve the product quality. And so I think blended products are a big part of how that's going to be possible. Mm -hmm. Um, now, just today, I saw a video, um, I think it's an advert that's running on Fox um, out there in the States. It's from the Center for the Environment and Welfare. Um, it's pretty derogatory um, about the cultivated meat sector. Uh, where we are the David um, against many Goliaths um, in this sector. So it's how should, could, can the alternative proteins industry overcome the power of these lobbyists? Yeah, look, and look, the attacks are kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. right? They're all coming after it, basically saying it's lab-grown meat and kind of franken meat, and it's weird and scientific and it has chemicals, and you should be scared of it, right? Like we know that's what we've seen already. We know that's what what's going to come. So ultimately, it's imperative for the industry to kind of accept that and kind of judo it. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you don't fight that by saying, "Oh no, we're all natural." You know, calling ourselves nothing to see here foods. This is like you know lab to table it's just like farm to table basically you know but no people are going to think it's sci-fi they're going to think it's weird they're going to think it's scientific you have to accept that and figure out how to make that fun and safe and exciting right because mm -hmm. it's cool that we're making real meat in this new way and yes we're basically doing it in a lab and technically it's not like no point doing that argument we're basically making it a lab but it's amazing that we can make real meat like in that way like that's actually mm -hmm. super cool and it's exciting and you should try it uh, and then just keep them coming back. So it's a great tasting product that's affordable because in the end, that's what people really care about. And so for us, that was a big part of our brand strategy. You know, like we called ourselves sci-fi foods very specifically because of that. We're like basically embracing it and making it and then using the rest of the brand and how we communicate to be like super transparent and like build trust, but then use the brand to make it fun and safe and just have a great tasting product. Mm -hmm. How best should we educate consumers about the benefits of these um, alternatives? Yeah, and again, I think um, here's where you a bit of where you've got to be careful, because again, you've got to be careful not to be moralizing, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think the most important thing is to just like get people excited to try it, right? And there are there is going to be a lot of just based off the novelty, there are a lot of people who are going to be excited to try plant based meat, sorry, the try cultivated meat and try blended products, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you've got to use that novelty to get people to come and try and then just keep them coming back because it's those it's keeping coming back that really matters and you can start from a small base and get a small base of like people who love the brand and love the products and are excited and grow from there and that's a better route than trying to kind of yeah persuade everyone and their dog to love it and eat it on on day one mm -hmm. are the um i mean collaborative efforts can amplify messages um so is there enough of that going on at the moment in the cultivated meat sector there is enough collaboration from all of the producers together to create this one big voice. You know, there, I mean, it's been tried. You know, Amps Innovation in the US has been working on that. The reality is it's challenging before people are really on market. 
Um, you know, people are very secretive about what they're doing and people have slightly different perspectives and it's all kind of all hypothetical, right? So ultimately, I think that um, those efforts are more valuable once you have uh, companies who are really in markets and selling and marketing and communicating in a meaningful way. And then you can kind of get more alignments on how to do that. Um, but again, when it's all just kind of hypotheticals for the future, it's kind of hard to get people aligned on what you need to do today around that. Yeah, I guess um, um, related to that, maintaining transparency with your production methods, ingredient sourcing, labeling, et cetera, is vital to build trust for those consumers. Um, are we doing a good enough job at the moment? Um, are we doing a good, job, a good enough job? Um, you know, um, no is the answer. Like you can always, always do more. Um, and especially as we're starting to see kind of attacks come up. But again, I'll come back to, I just think the best thing that the industry can be doing is just getting products into market, into the hands of consumers. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the best way to make it less scary and less weird is to see just like normal people eating it. Mm -hmm. And that's all we need to do. Yeah. Now, um, Robert Jones, I'm sure you know him. He's from Cellular, Cellular Agriculture Europe, also Mose and Meats. Yeah. Um, he thinks the term alternative protein suggests a replacement and an either or. So he prefers the term complementary um, proteins, primarily as he doesn't believe that the alt protein sector can stand up to the might of the meat sector, etc. Um, he's therefore advocating a collaborative relationship with the traditional livestock industry. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about the two sectors living side by side in sweet harmony in the future? I know you get your cell lines from... Um, livestock in Ohio, I believe. Yeah, I mean, look, um, the reality is conventional animal agriculture isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, you know, demand for meat uh, around the world keeps going up every single mm -hmm. year. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to figure out how we can meet that growing demand without destroying the planet. And, um, you know, cultivated meat uh, can play a really important role in doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, and for now, there's more than enough market and growth in the market for everyone. Um, yeah. So do I think that there is a future where cultivated meat is really the norm instead of conventional meat? Yeah, that is where we're eventually going to. But that's not a future that's coming anytime soon. Uh, that's a future that, that we're developing over the, over the coming decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the meantime, yeah, it's going to take time for cultivated meat to scale up production. Um, Conventional animal agriculture still plays a really important role in feeding the world and will do for a long time. I don't think there'll ever be a time where there's zero conventional animal agriculture. Um, you know, so we're not taking away anyone's meat if they, if they want to still kill an animal for it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it is about complementing it for the, for the foreseeable future and, and just meeting that demand uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a good way, in a way that's good for the planet. Um, COP28 was last week. Well, it was the week before and the week before that, but it concluded last week. Um, did you see anything that gave you any um, cause for joy? For, uh, food was on the menu, obviously, for the first time or in a meaningful way. Yeah, you know, look, it, it's great that there is increasing recognition by policymakers and governments that um, if, if you're serious about fighting climate change, then you have to be thinking about food and you have to be thinking about meat. Right. And the data is just like so clear uh, about the outsized impact that um, that especially meat and especially beef has on climate change mm -hmm. that um, you know, we're not going to be able to get to net zero if we don't tackle it. And ultimately, um, you, you know, so, yes. So from from that high level perspective, I think it's great that 
food is getting the recognition that it requires for us to really have a big impact on climate mm. in the world. Um, obviously, what matters is what actually comes out from that. And uh, do governments provide the support with funding, subsidies, you know, manufacturing loans, all this kind of stuff to actually uh, help the industry succeed mm -hmm. in, uh, in a food market where there's a huge amount of subsidies and support uh, on the other side. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see when the rubber meets the road, uh, yeah. what they actually deliver from a financial perspective. But you need an incredibly patient VC to, to wait decades for a return on their investment. So I guess it's going to have to come from governments at some point. Well, yeah, and I think it's decades for the 100% cultivated. But obviously, I think there's a massive market opportunity in the near term for blended products. So mm. from a VC return perspective, I think there's there's something, something available much, much closer. Uh -huh. um, and finally, any major developments on the horizon for sci-fi foods? Yeah, I mean, look, at Sci-Fi, we just completed our uh, first production facility, what we call our kind of small pilot plant um, that was designed from the ground up to go through FDA and USDA approval here in the US. Um, and your goal, uh, touch wood, is to have full regulatory approval you know, by the end of next year. Um, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, that depends partly on regulators, um, but that's our goal. And that should put us in a spot where we can actually be commercializing and you know, selling real Sci-Fi burgers to people uh, at the beginning of 2025. So that's what we're, we're running towards quickly and very excited about. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, look, Joshua, thank you very much for the time, for the time that you've um, spent with us uh, this morning or this evening for us here in the UK. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, good luck with everything. Cool. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.